Welcome back, folks, to episode 16 of the Running Man Self-Regulation and Self-Improvement Project podcast with your host, me, Dr. Armando Dominguez, PhD in health psychology and also licensed professional counselor and adjunct professor at a local community college. I've been a martial artist for many years, and this is a pertinent detail in the sense that the martial arts that I learned involved lots of uh, physical Competitive type stuff, but also meditation. Meditation that uh, I would say helped me in managing what would be a physical stress whenever we're training this sort of thing with the potential application in real life self defense, which I have. And probably the most important thing that I've learned uh, from the meditative practices had to do with not engaging the ego. So today's topic is going to be not only about ego, but about self, self-image, how we see ourselves, and how we think other people see us. And I kind of laugh because generally there's a lot of disparity between all of those. But also we'll be talking about the dispassionate observer. That's that part of us that does what people call the, the meta-mind or the meta-thinking where we can observe our own thoughts and have judgments about it, but it's even a little bit further than that. It is that part of us that observes everything without judgment, without engagement. And uh, whenever we discuss this today, we'll realize the importance of it. And it's not a big woo-woo concept. It's not. What it is, it's an overly sophisticated but extremely simple way of doing things that can help us whenever we get entangled in those things that we seem to think are so important as the world or world or earth shattering when in actuality maybe they're just factual and I put too much emotional weight on it so considering what we covered up until now in the podcast about hyper arousal uh, being in fear the physiological arousal state and how suggestible we are and how easily we become very binary in our thinking black, white, up, down, concrete uh, in our way of reasoning that sometimes the simple is a good thing when we come to understand that on the physiological side we oversimplify and concretize what's outside when in actuality we just need to simplify what's going on inside and that's looking at things from how we are in that moment and that does require a little understanding of the principle of being mindful that is the media honey the last eight to ten years and also being embodied in the sense that we feel grounded that's a good term uh, but using these things concurrently at the same time uh, actually can generate a really good benefit whenever I'm dealing with things day to day especially if they're particularly stressful this uh, podcast is about self-regulation and being skillful in regulating self it's easy to regulate yourself when things are calm when they're safe and everyone is just having a good time. But when things get a little dicey, when they get stressful and uncomfortable, these are the times that we need those skills most so that we can get through those moments and get back to our more balanced homeostatic state that we call our baseline. Now, if you have a high anxiety baseline, I'm not saying we're going back to anxiety. What I'm saying is that uh, we're able to weather those things that are the changes that often will derail us from what are uh, personal, typical, normal is. And uh, 
that is something that is individual and specific, not like alien from one planet to another different, but rather what we call as an individual human, our typical day-to-day baseline. So without further delay, ego, self-image, self, true self, and also the dispassionate observer. Let's start with the ego. We all have one. And if you've ever done any kind of meditative practice, and if you hear uh, anything currently on social media, many people throw this term around about being egotistical or being stuck in the ego whenever we get a little, in quotes, butthurt uh, when somebody says something that we would deem offensive. And mind you, that offense has to do with an idea based on words that somebody has spoken. Let's think about this. And why would we offend if there were merely words? This is assuming someone is not making a direct threat to you or that you're not in a threatening environment. Just speaking things that we would take and value as far as ideas that we would allow ourselves to become physically aroused or, in quotes, become offended. And this is where the beginnings of ego being problematic it's really, really interesting because often what we do moment to moment is identify with what it is we're doing in the sense that I, in quotes, am doing this. I am that. Or I used to do this or I'm going to go there. So we have a sense of me as an individual and I or the ego me, the ego sense of me, not egotistical, but just the sense of I'm self-aware and this is how I identify and this is what I think I look like and how I am whenever I interact with other people, this amalgam of sensation, thoughts, uh, how I might project myself in the future and how I've seen myself in the past and how I would judge myself now based on how I feel. All of this we would call uh, a sense of ego. So this gives us our sense of self-awareness and how I exist in my world moment to moment. That sounds like a whole heck of a lot, but it's really easy. We do it moment to moment. So it's not anything you have to practice, but we have to pull it out to be able to tease it out of the the larger conversation we're having today that can benefit us in self-regulatory skill in life generally, but more particularly when things really get difficult, stressful, or possibly even dangerous. So, The ego is that part of us that we assume is us. But if we think about it, if we've judged ourselves, there's a part of us that's behind that. This is the part of us that observes our thoughts and has judgments of our own thoughts. So if we're to look at it from a Freudian perspective, our ego that we deal with in our day-to-day is our day-to-day mind. This is what uh, we've talked about earlier about the mask of the polis that psychology likes to call uh, what we would call our day-to-day interactive self-image. And uh, that's the face we put on our game face where we're dealing day-to-day. It's not inauthentic. This is just how we present, and that's okay. That's allowed. So the ego can become problematic when we over-identify with this. And mind you, I I mentioned sometimes we get kind of high on the prefrontal cortex. 
lot of the folks that talk about neuroimaging and the lower brain and the reptilian complex and the amygdala structures, it's okay to know about those structures. We have to know where those things are and what lights up when we're doing things, especially when we're dealing with like addiction science. Absolutely important. Not denigrating that. But I think that we have to realize that we tend to overvalue the higher cortex. Now, the higher cortex, our prefrontal cortex, this is a part that we reason with, that we do our ABCs, one, two, threes with. This is also the part that we name and label and determine, I did this yesterday, so therefore, if I do it again today, I'm going to do either really, really good or really, really bad. We start having projective predictive expectations, and, and that's cool. That's what we're supposed to do. But whenever things get stressful, we tend to go more towards a simplified categorical thinking. And, and that's okay, too. That's just a recognition of the symptom of stress going up. We can categorically think whenever we're in our safest state and separate things in one bin and another, and this is that block, and you go into that box, that sort of thing. That's okay. But the categorical thinking becomes more of a default whenever our ability to flexibly think and respond versus categorically react and simplify and categorize because we're trying to be expedient and save energy, especially if there's a potential uh, threat or an implied threat in our environment or maybe an immediate threat in our environment. And if somebody is speaking to us and there is no physical threat going on in our assumption of safety is physically met, but at the same time, if someone is in our environment and they're saying things that make us really uncomfortable or they're implying things or maybe they make veiled threats based on whatever it is that they're trying to tell you uh, that you're aware of without necessarily saying it out loud or clearly, but yet the implied message is there and you responded to it because our ability to cut through the crap in the sense using our ability to see into things, truly seeing, looking deeply into what's going on, not physiological looking in the sense of perception, but rather interpretation of environmental threat, even if somebody is veiling or camouflaging their intention, so to speak. We have to trust that and trust our gut when we have that. So whenever we have this digression into more categorical thinking, we start inching towards that black and white, more concrete reasoning. We start seeing fewer of the connections between things, and our immediate environment is less fluid. It's less dynamic in the sense of it being in flux versus it being dynamic in a more linear sense. Uh, it's getting closer to me or it's moving away from me in a more approach-avoid sense. Now, that almost sounds too simplified, but what I'm talking about is uh, a continuum of stress from what we'd call happy stress if we're enjoying communication to a negative that would be distress moving from the use stress and that would be more positive. And uh, I want you to keep this in mind. Whenever we are involved in that, there is a sense of threat to ego or how I identify or who I see myself as moment to moment. And that could involve some sense of physical harm. And, and we have to know that it's closely tied to our sense of survival. So, the more we want to survive that big red number one that we have emblazoned on the back of our shirt and on the front of our shirt that says I'm number one is not a selfish thing. That is a self-preservation sense or feeling. And yes, that is a metaphorical representation of the intensity. But uh, I want you to think about it this way. 
whenever we have that threat, our sense of ego becomes a little more solidified, a little more dear, and it feels very perishable. Now we're going to move on to the sense of self. Whenever there's a sense of self, this is a deeper organismic thing. This is a self-awareness too, and this is too closely tied to that number one on that shirt that I was telling you about moments ago. But the sense of self is not necessarily something that involves uh, a social validation or acceptance by others, which ego is, because ego has to do with not only how I see myself, but also how we interact with others. And that ties very closely to the social paradigm that is not far from the survival aspect when we were cave people many, many thousands of years ago, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, whenever we were cave folks, and if somebody kicked me out of the tribe, my, and I am flexing my air quotes here, my six, my back, my backside was no longer being watched by somebody else's eyes that made me vulnerable to predation whenever I was out and about hunting, trying to get something to eat and make it. There were safeties and safety in numbers, so that was very closely tied to my value as an individual and to the tribe or the group, whomever it was that I was running around with. So my survivability drops as soon as I was out of the tribe, unless I found someone else or some other group with whom to tie up with. Now, the sense of self is more of the self-awareness that has to do with the non-reasoning, not higher prefrontal cortical thought in, in particular, but rather the perceptual awareness of an individual in the environment. And this is an important thing. But uh, whenever we're talking about that, that has to do with how I'm interacting with the environment, how the environment's impacting me as an individual, before I start interacting or socializing or exchanging the information about that. So this is the non-talk level and how I fit into my immediate space. And to give you an example is if you've ever been out in the woods and you're just walking quietly on your own, or if you're out in the environment, you could be out in the big city like uh, San Antonio, New York, wherever it is that you might walk, and there are other people out there. There is a social quality because you know there are people. But when you're out in the woods, it's a bit different. You're part of the bigger whole, and the bigger whole communicates when you're around and sometimes whenever you're out and about. And if there aren't any predators, usually little birds and insects will be chirping and making their noise. But yet, whenever there is predator or a shift that is not normalized within the milieu of what we would call the flow of a dynamic environment, everything silences. And we feel like we stick out like a, a, a sore thumb like this glowing beacon of biological individualism that does not fit in. That self-awareness, knowing when I'm in flow and connected with the environment and when I'm not, has to do with our sense of self, organismic self. The next part. So what is the true self? That is something that uh, many of the spiritual teachers like to talk about, as if, it's something that they have a special hold on, but in fact, it's a very simplified reasoning. If you read into the, the books on meditation and teachings on spiritual path, there's an, a, a very common string within all of those, and that's that we have this silence, often the term holy emptiness or being one with the divine. 
Um, and we're not speaking spiritual things right here. We're still speaking a very physiological, uh, neurological uh, experience that you can have that can be very silent and quiet. And that's a part of us that observes and just observes. It doesn't judge. This isn't our meta thinking. And that's, of course, you know, the very popular term that people are using, being aware that I can observe my own thoughts. And I say that with relish because uh, it, it seems funny to me. But at the same time, there are many of us that have never taken the time because we're so quickly moving at the ego level that we don't delve in any further into how it is that we are. And some people get uncomfortable there because they don't know what to do. And whenever we have that sense of quiet and that sense of self, often we feel like, oh, I'm being unproductive. And that's a socialized ego thing, too. This does not mean don't work at your business or work at your job. This means that we have to be aware of our organismic sense of self and how we plug into what we do and what we find valuable and know that that's not us. We are separate from it. We do those things, but we aren't those things. Now, we were speaking about the sense of flow in uh, episode 15, I believe, 14 or 15. Um, and this is not the enjoyable um, sense of flow wherever you feel like you're one with what you're doing. This is the identification of task and how I interact with it without necessarily identifying so strongly with it that whenever the task is gone that I, I have discomfort. So this sense of self is a, a very uh, lovely sense of being comfortable. Like whenever you see a little two-year-old that is becoming socialized in the world and they're just observing and interacting and touching and exploring and experiencing, that's a very good representation of what we are like when we're our most simple or simplified self. Now, the next thing, uh, our observer. Our sense of observer, when we think observer, when I think observer in particular, I think of an eye or eyes that are looking always. And uh, if you see some of the, the philosophers that um, post Plato and Socrates, they speak of the, the eye that sees all time at once simultaneously, which is a pretty phenomenal construct considering quantum physics and what they're saying occurs in our entangled state. But the fact that if we take things from a very high dispassionate, and they call it the God perspective, that we see all things at once, that's a very broad view versus my individual egoistic self. I'm experiencing time here, and I can think about past and, and project and imagine what it's going to be like in the future. And then we have the observer, truly the dispassionate observer uh, perspective is like I'm seeing things from a distance, but with no engagement in the sense of emotion, no judgment, bad or good, or this is interesting, just seeing things unfold in the way that they do naturally without intervening or interacting, but merely taking in the information. Truly no emotional blips on the radar there, so therefore we have this quality of dispassionate observer, and this is an important thing. So why would I go through the details of these three differentiations of how I see self, how self is, and how I see myself? And is this dispassionate observer the true self? And I would say, in the most physical neurological sense, yes. 
the dispassionate observer is the me without the moniker or the name or label of I, ego, me, or whatever my name is. It is just me observing. Now, how does this apply to self-regulation? Well, I'm glad that I asked that question. And I'm hoping you're asking that question of yourself. This is a self-directed question. How does this help me? How can I benefit? Well, this is where we take off into the benefit and the how-to. There's a little exercise that I do whenever I teach my college students, but also when I teach my martial art uh, students and friends. And something that I've taught whenever I've shared how to improve yourself in anger management type courses and also parenting courses. So we know where it is our opinion is coming from. Of course, opinion means that I have emotions and therefore I have some sort of engagement or, or skin in the game, so to speak, having to do with what it is that may be bothering me, irritating me, or possibly even offending me. So I have to know how to disengage, know how to engage in what area of my mind am I engaging from in the sense of filter, so to speak. And here are the three filters. Uh, the first one is the first person observer, okay? Or experiencer, I should say. That's probably more correct to call the first person perspective is the experiencer. And uh, for the younger generations that may be listening, if you've ever played uh, Mario Kart, um, it's now an old game, or do anything like a VR headset, whenever you're seeing it's the, the perspective of the actor. So whenever you play Mario Kart and you're seeing the TV, whenever you have your game controller, it's your little hands wearing the gloves and driving it to your hands on, on the steering wheel. So this is your perspective, looking out of your eyes, experiencing things wherever you're seeing forward. Okay. And that's how you're engaging your environment. So first person is the experiencer or the first person perspective. Once again, second person is the have you walked a mile in my moccasins or shoes perspective. That is also known as the compassionate perspective. It is also known as the empathic perspective. And you can have empathy and understanding whenever we take into consideration how the impact of a situation uh, has taken its toll on an individual if we're listening to somebody, if we're hearing somebody tell us what happened to them. Then there's the third person perspective. The third person has to do with that dispassionate observer. When we can disengage from a situation and observe it mentally without emotion and just see things factually, sometimes we rewind the tape and we, mental tape, mind you, and we listen, rather see what it is that we've done after the fact. Now, we can't erase what we've done, but we can certainly see how things went down and look at things from a perspective other than whenever I was engaged, let's say, in a confrontation or an argument, maybe a fight, or I made a mistake when I was driving and I cut somebody off, or maybe I went and did a rolling stop through a stop sign and almost caused a crash. We can go and rewind it and say, okay, I see where I made my mistake. 
the third person objective allows uh, allows you to see things without necessarily making a judgment and being punitive or punishing, but allows us to see things so we can make corrections. So it's a very useful tool. The first person allows us to see, well, how am I engaging? And that's what we do day to day. We're most practiced in that. Whenever we use a second person objective, that perspective, that view, allows us to try to understand more deeply without necessarily getting overwhelmed, but also allowing us to not be so categorical and rule-bound, especially if we're helping somebody. In the substance abuse field, whenever we're doing counseling, whenever you're doing mental health counseling, whenever anyone along the lines of myself, for instance, that does anything like career counseling, helping people find a job or make a decision in their life, or help someone decide on what classes to to take or what career path to take as far as education, or even what am I going to do in my life and how can I do this better? Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm inadequate. Whenever we start hearing things like this, the second perspective allows us to listen actively, more effectively, without necessarily trying to fix, but rather walking alongside. This is a very person-centered approach without necessarily doing for them. And it's not offering proscriptions or instructions on how to, but rather allowing one to have an active ear. Because sometimes we just need to have somebody listen to us so that we can hear what we're thinking out loud. The things that we say that are in our minds and on our hearts that weigh heavily sometimes sound different whenever we speak them. And our reasoner hears that and we think about it and it's way different than how we hold them in our mind. That's why it's really important to always have somebody you can visit with. And it doesn't mean a counselor. You can have somebody that's a confident, that's a friend, somebody that that you trust their, their reasoning and know that, especially if it's a sensitive topic, that they're not going to share it with anybody, but that also wants good for you. Those people aren't always easy to get. and Sometimes it's easier to pay somebody to listen to you. But if you have somebody like that, certainly leverage them. Have them listen to you. Ask for that help. And it's okay to have that. Some of us get stuck in that, I'm so used to doing things on my own. That's a very egotistical perspective. And when the ego becomes egotistical, meaning that no one can help me because I only know my problems and they're so unique, that's whenever we separate ourselves. Notice there's a little imagination. I'm unique. Well, if you're human, you're not. We all share arms, legs, noses, eyes, and well, yes, I said that wrong on purpose. If anyone laughed with me, <laughs> it's probably not my English teacher. But uh, whenever we understand that we share a human experience and that we may have situational uniqueness, but we don't have individual human uniqueness to the degree that we can't share details or understanding with each other, whenever we feel like we're so isolated that I'm so alone, we're telling ourselves a story and we're filling it with emotion that we're using as evidence to push forth that isolation and individuation that could be unhealthy, but also may even limit our ability to grow because if anyone gets better at anything, it's not because they invented something necessarily and all of a sudden they took off and they made it big. They may have learned from others. They may have fallen many times. They may have failed often. But it's whenever we identify with the failure 
and measure ourselves by that. We've had lots of failures. I know I have. But I'm not a failure as a human being. I'm still here kicking, talking, and visiting, and learning. I love to read, love to exchange with people because there's always so much more to learn. And every perspective is interesting. In Spanish, there, there's an old adage that says, Cada cabeza es un mundo. Every head is a world, a separate world. So if we think about it that way, that allows us to have a great deal of respect for everyone that we visit and see. And what's most fascinating and just so beautiful to me, because I was a dad and whenever my little ones were young and they were unsocialized little savages, I call them that now. And uh, it was fun because I would see the universality in their eyes. Everything was so new. And to see them going through that and thinking that at one point I was that, and thinking that at one point you were that little individual that was adventuring and exploring and touching everything like it was new the first time. Wow, when I had that realization, it blew my mind. But I was having a second person perspective. At times I would have the third person perspective looking at things, just how they unfolded and just that mystery was amazing to me. And it's something I like sharing. So we can in any way remind ourselves of these things and realize that our sense of self developed over time. Our sense of ego, we got socialized and we learned how to use that and how to become those things that would get us our attention, our love, and our care. We learn how to play the game, so to speak. So we learn how to get along to get along. And it's not being inauthentic, it's a necessary thing. But when we realize that just because it's necessary doesn't mean that is me. That's just merely a tool that I use so that I can survive more effectively. Then we can probably put it in a more healthy context and realize that there's a great deal of me that is unique. There's a great deal of me that's not so unique, even though we like to think so. Everyone likes being special, and we are. But at the same time, not getting so hung up on that special that we can't relate to other people, whether it be negative, positive, or I'm the only one, or I'm so isolated, or nobody understands me. Sometimes we have to allow ourselves to be listened to. Sometimes we have to create some trust, some rapport, to allow someone to listen, not so that they can understand you perfectly, but rather so that you feel heard, so we feel validated, and that also we can recognize our value by having someone else recognize our value as a human being. Very important stuff. So we've run the gamut today and talked about some nuts and bolts, ego, self, true self, and dispassionate observer things. May these things expand your mind. And if you know somebody that could benefit from this podcast, hey, have them listen to it, share it, follow, like, share if you have any comments or questions or would like to hear me uh, discuss a certain topic relative to the things that we've been doing on this podcast thus far, just email me at runningmangetskillsproject at gmail. And for now, we're going to close this podcast. I want to say thank you for spending some time with me this early Saturday morning. I usually do this in the evenings, and it's been rather quiet. And I uh, appreciate your time and your listening and walk well. Take care.